Welcome back to episode 5 of the Yoldi Guide, the podcast guide to the history and heritage of the towns and cities of England. In this episode, we're delighted to be discussing a city with fascinating varied history, from Romans through Saxons through medieval and Victorian periods of huge growth. It's got famous city walls, incredible architecture. We are, of course, talking about Chester. I'm Liam McGrath, and together with my old friend and co-host historian Daniel Gooch, in this podcast, we discuss the history of towns and cities across England. Basically, we research, we visit, we discuss each town, and for a bit of fun, we rate uh, the town or the city we visited in four topical areas. And these categories are culture, politics and war, science and industry, and architectural heritage. And then we have a fifth category which we're calling reality versus expectations where we we say how we feel the town went compared to our expectations so we've explained these categories on the website so daniel how how are you doing and uh, you've received quite a bit of feedback i gather on previous episodes coventry and reading i'm doing very well very hot it's a very hot day today um yeah so we've had some feedback on coventry a chap called Andy, who's actually from Coventry, has given us some feedback um, around Coventry being one of the international cities of peace, which is really very much a legacy of the damage and the kind of resurgence there following the Second World War. And um, Coventry actually became one of the first twin cities in the world when it became twinned with what was known at the time as Stalingrad in Russia, now Volgograd, okay. which of course received great damage during the Second World War. And yep. it's now one of only two um, international cities of peace designated in England, that along with uh, with Bradford. And we've also received some feedback on the Reading episode as well. Oh, brilliant. Paul mentioned that it brought back memories of watching the Rosie and Jim episode where they, they visited Reading and, and went around the Abbey. Rosie and Jim, for anyone who doesn't know, was this kind of funny children's program where two rag dolls would go around in a boat visiting different places actually look that episode up on youtube there's a lot of the abbey there so yeah good recommendation paul both great observations i have to say rosie and jim i don't really remember what it was about but i do remember the, the theme song there wasn't much Somehow. to it other than rag dolls and and the bloke on the boat just going around different towns i think that's pretty much all it was but good shots of reading abbey Brilliant. And we've received plenty of feedback on the, the podcast and the website. Of course, we've got a website with all the extensive notes um, about the cities that we visited. So that's worth checking out. So thank you to, to everyone. Um, and if you've, you've not listened before and you're listening to this episode for the first time, do check out those previous episodes. So now we're moving on to Chester. Uh, we had a fantastic visit to Chester, one of the most famous cities, I suppose, in the UK, quite a small city. Many listeners will know Chester, but why was Chester such an important location in England? Well, the interesting thing about Chester is it's got perhaps the most diverse history of any city we've covered so far. It's not a massive settlement. The present day, many cities around like Liverpool kind of dominate it economically, industrially. But really, its small scale belies its really huge historical importance to its region and to the country. One of the reasons Chester has always been so important was, one, for much of its history, it stood alone in its region from any other major settlements. Really, this only changed in the Middle Ages with the rise of Shrewsbury and with the rise of Liverpool and other industrial towns in the North West and the North Wales um, following the Industrial Revolution. But up to that point, um, 
militarily, logistically, it stood at a kind of crossroads of the British Isles. It stood midway between um, Lower Scotland, between London, between many important areas of Wales and Dublin. So, for instance, when the Romans settled there, it was built, the initial kind of foundation of, of Chester as a Roman town was when it was a fort was constructed there as the base for the 20th Legion. And it's been speculated that that was one because it was a great position to hold off British tribes that were still resisting Roman rule in Wales and also potentially a good staging point for a potential future invasion of Ireland. But yeah, that's really the reason. It's always stood apart, had political autonomy in many ways, which we'll talk a bit more about later, and just really been a very good strategic location. So you've mentioned uh, Roman Chester. It was significant in the Saxon period. It was significant in the medieval period. And then it had its resurgence as a, and it became, I, I suppose, ultimately a centre of leisure and tourism, which we'll come back to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, retail tourism sectors, they really dominate the town's economy today. And that's really thanks in no small part to the, the great preservation of Victorian revival architecture in the city, which really does contrast distinctively with some of the post-war urban style of many of the major cities of that region. And I think it's fair to say that when we visited Chester, we did partake in the hospitality facilities there, many good restaurants and pubs. I think we ate and drank well on our visit. We did. And um, Chester actually has three of the only 11 grade one listed pubs in England. We've heard that Chester is one of the oldest and most important settlements in Northern England throughout long periods of, of English history. And yet, despite its enduring presence in the political and economic spheres, retail, there's not really so much to say about its broad cultural influence beyond the city. That's not to say there isn't much to see and feel in the city. The arts and manifestations of human achievement over the ages are certainly felt in its architecture and museums, and we'll come back to that in the urban heritage section. Indeed, Chester's attraction as a tourist centre is in part down to things like the excellent Grosvenor Museum, its storyhouse theatre, its beautiful shopping arcades. Its urbanism gives it a distinguishing cultural backdrop for visitors today. But in this section, we're really exploring things like writers, painters, musicians that created something known beyond the city. And in this area, we couldn't really find that much to say. However, Chester does have a standout cultural venue in the world of sport. So let's talk first about the fantastic Chester Racecourse. Absolutely. Um, Chester Racecourse it held its first meeting in 1540. And it's actually the oldest racecourse in the world that's still going and still one of the most important in Britain today. It's actually built partly on the site of the old city port. Um, but one of the things that makes the racecourse so charming is all the small idiosyncrasies you've got there, um, such as the shortness of its track. It's actually the shortest of any major British racecourse. It has the basis of a, base of a Saxon rude cross there as well. But my favourite there really is the D stand, which is really distinctive. It's actually built into the original city walls. Um, it gives this kind of illusion of people hanging off the walls to watch the races. I know Norwich City's old ground, the Nest, which closed about 100 years ago, had something very similar built into an old quarry. But that's the only parallel I can think of. It's a really spectacular site. I really enjoyed walking around. And of course, it's really easy just to walk into the race course. There's, no, there's nothing stopping you going in when it's not a race day. You can just walk around the race course on, almost on the city wall. You sort of come off the city wall 
and then onto the the road which goes along the top of the race course and then you can just walk down the steps into the race course you've you've mentioned um that it's the shortest uh, and and the oldest so it really is world famous absolutely it is and i think what's also quite distinctive about it it's it's not just the race course itself but where it is it's really central location when you think of most major british race courses they tend to be for obvious reasons in slightly more rural areas but just a race course is really a central part of the city itself it's physically in the center literally built into its urban urban fabric yeah. built into the walls now there is um there's not really much to say about the football ground in chester apart from a fantastic piece of trivia oh this be the one about it being in two countries um, that's it I think that's actually true I always thought this was an urban myth but I looked up a map the the ground is actually based on the English and Welsh border I think part of the stand one stand is actually over in one country and the rest of the ground is in the other country so yeah it's actually true you can be in one ground move around and cross an international border international in the world of sport and Covid restrictions Chester, Chester is right on the edge of England and that and it, it is so proximate to that North Wales area and we'll come back to when we talk about trade that's that's really important so is there anything else really to say on cultural influence for Chester it, it's very hard to think of anything significant and to be honest it, it's hard not to feel like we're missing something but the Victoria County history actually talks about this embraces it directly and says Chester's I'll quote here directly wider cultural links have always been rather meagre And what doesn't help there is there's been really quite little 20th century immigration into Chester, which suggests it may in some respects have always been a bit of a monoculture. I mean, the only historical period in which there was any sort of mass migration to the city was the Roman invasion when the city was founded. So it's perhaps lacked that diversity, which stirs creativity in so many other cities. Um, there was some Irish migration following the Irish potato famine, but nothing like to the same extent found in nearby by Liverpool. I mean, there are some Welsh language institutions um, in the city, but given that Chester practically straddles, well, it does straddle the Welsh border, as we said, that doesn't in itself give enough kind of cultural diversity to, to give you a reason to visit the city. Beyond that, the only other things to mention are the British soap opera Hollyoaks. I don't know if you're a fan of that, Liam. Um, that's set in Chester. Uh-huh. I've heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> set I'm in more, Chester. I'm more of an East Enders man myself. Well, when we when we come onto the East End of London, we can definitely get into that. Great. <laughs> um, some modern entertainers were born there. Um, some were educated there. The band Manson, the Britpop band, I think they are, was formed there. But it's not as though this anything permeated their creative creative output in the same way that, say, Swindon's industrial heritage did for XTC, as we discussed in the Swindon episode. Yeah. So, and we spoke, you know, in Coventry, we spoke about how the immigration, yes. the industries that attracted sort of worldwide immigration led to, to the creation of music scene and an art scene. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I got that as well. So, shall we then go on to the scores? Yeah. Um, Wrap up culture for, for Chester? I think it's going to be probably the poorest score Chester will get. I, I, I absolutely have no doubt that this will pick up for Chester. But for me, all I can really give it is a... I'm going to give it a two. I was thinking of going lower, but because I really, really do love that race course, I'm going to, going to inject some subjectivity into it here and give it a two. Uh, I'm also giving it a two, not because I'm copying you. I I had two in my head all day. And I, I am reluctant. I just want to be clear. I, I, we're not saying here that it that it doesn't feel like a cultured place. It does. It feels like it's buzzing. There's a lot going on, but it, there just isn't that what's it given to the world culturally. All the other categories, we will see that there is lots and lots to offer in Chester. So, 
Let's move on to our next category. From Roman times through the Middle Ages and beyond, in many senses, Chester felt like the capital of the northwest of England. What made Chester such an important settlement throughout history? What's interesting about Chester is, as you say, um, for a long time it was the most important city in the northwest of England, while never being particularly high in population. But it still exerted a huge regional influence for centuries, really being at kind of the centre of judicial, military and commercial life for a very wide region for hundreds of years, really kind of up to the Industrial Revolution. In fact, it used to actually be called as an alternative name Westchester from the 14th to 18th century, um, which is kind of symbolic of the city's regional importance to the west of England. But really, Chester owed this prominence to two key factors. One was its location. It lay very directly on transport routes between Wales, the Irish Sea and northern and southern Britain. The way to think of it really is it's kind of at the centre of this great British Isles crossroads and was the main staging point between the two major British Isles capitals of London and Dublin, about equidistant in travel time between the two. And the second, talking more about its kind of regional importance here, was its remoteness for so long from any other significant settlements. And until maybe the rise of Shrewsbury in the Middle Ages and then the other northern industrial towns in its vicinity in the 19th century, there was never really a larger town particularly close to it. So what that really means is that Chester's regional outreach and even its national outreach always belied its kind of low, moderate population. Now, that makes a lot of sense. It's never been huge in size. And that really goes right back to the Romans, doesn't it? It was never really a big Roman town like Colchester or, or London. It was a, a legionary f- fort. And uh, why did why did the Romans choose Chester for, for their for the twentieth legion. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the Romans are actually absolutely fundamental to the existence of Chester. Um, Chester owes its very existence to its foundation as the headquarters of the twentieth legion in Britain, um, and because of that, it was one of the most significant military locations in Roman Britain. And to answer your question, the site was probably chosen again because of its strategic location. It may have offered a good spot from which to invade Ireland. Um, but it also offered good defence against the native British tribes in North Wales. And one interesting thing about Roman Chester um, is around several artefacts that have been found in excavations there, which bear the name of the Roman governor of Britain. This, together with some of the uniqueness and ornateness of the architectural buildings which have been found there, um, particularly on the site of the Forum Shopping Centre during excavations in the 60s, have led some historians to suggest that Chester was actually possibly planned as the new Roman capital of Britain, which makes absolute sense in some ways when you think about its fantastic strategic location. Now, the evidence isn't exactly totally conclusive on this, but it certainly underscores the military and political importance of Chester to Roman Britain. As well as that strategic location, it's very physical location as well. And you can see this when you visit it. It's a good site for a defensible location, isn't it? You've you've got the River Dee, uh, which are, would have been navigable uh, up to Chester, and it was also the point at which the D could realistically be crossed. The first crossing point, limited and limited navigability. The other thing that really strikes you when you visit Chester is it's got a good view over quite an extensive area, so it feels like a readily defensible city. So you, you've mentioned some of the 
the, the great uh, some of the some of the evidence from the Roman period, the elliptical building that might indicate it was a capital. But Chester remained important once the Romans left, if not even more so. Yeah, I mean, we, we can jump ahead a, f- a few hundred years here to the Anglo-Saxon period. And Chester was a really important city in the Saxon kingdom of Mercia. And it was hugely strengthened actually in the 910s by the Mercian ruler Ethelfled. I don't know if that's a name you've come across before, Liam, but Ethelfled um, refounded Chester as a fortified Burr. Burr was kind of a fortified town in Saxon times, made it a government centre for the Shire, expanded the city, founded what became its cathedral and enhanced its walls. And the most noteworthy thing, apart from her achievements, was the fact that Ethelfled was a woman. And mm. she's, she's shamefully disappeared from popular consciousness these days, um, partly because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, our main record for the time, tended to record the exploits of Wessex rather than Mercia, another Saxon kingdom, because it was commissioned for that purpose. But really, Ethelfled, who was the eldest daughter of Alfred the Great, should be better known today as an incredibly rare example of a female Saxon leader when Mercia still had this independence mm from the other Saxon kingdoms. No, I must admit, prior to researching this episode, I knew nothing about Ethelfled. But really, her influence was absolutely fundamental to Chester's later um, significance. It's, as I said, it's almost shameful how little commemorated she is today. But really, the whole city, the walls, the cathedral, all the intangibles of its post-Saxon history are down to her. And I suppose you could say that itself is her memorial. So Chester, important in the Saxon period and um, and in the reign of King Edgar the Peaceful, who I seem to remember you mentioning in the Bath episode. We did. We talked about his coronation in the Bath episode. Um, king Edgar is kind of one of the first monarchs who had a real claim to have been the king of all the English, reigning all other regional leaders. And... There was actually a famous event in Chester which really helped to demonstrate his supremacy. He held a council in Chester in 973 where other British regional kings, including Scottish and Welsh leaders, pledged their allegiance to him and famously rode him across the River Dee as a sign of deference from his royal residence, which he kept on one bank of the Dee, to St John's Church on the other side. And his royal residence, the site of that, is actually known as Edgar's Field now. Now, there is considerable doubt over the actual veracity of this story, so we don't know for sure if it's true or not. Um, but it does certainly reveal something about Edgar's supremacy at the time and the importance of Chester being picked as the kind of supposed location for such a symbolically important event. Uh, one thing I'm enjoying about this podcast is every town has a myth, you know, it's a story that's not quite true, but we but we like them anyway. And I think there's another one coming up in Chester, isn't there? Um the, uh, the other thing that struck me when I was reading about this area of Chester is its mint. So uh, I was I was reading that its mint was for a for a short period in the ninth or tenth century the most prolific in the country. Um, yeah, mints in Saxon times weren't quite organised on the same basis today. You didn't have one central mint; they were dotted around. But there's no question that the mint in Chester was more prolific than. Um, many others across the country because of its importance in the Kingdom of Mercia. Uh, let's zoom forward to uh, William the Conqueror. Uh, what happened to Chester? Well, interesting thing about Chester, um, I suppose you can draw two points out. First, he destroyed half the buildings in the city. Chester was one of the last cities 
to surrender to the Norman Conquest, one of the last major cities in England to do so. Um, and William subdued it by half raising it to the ground. The evidence is there in the Doomsday Book of all the buildings that were destroyed. Um, but what happened after this is that Chester gained a, a lot of political autonomy by being made the centre of a Palatinate earldom in 1071. Now, Palatinate regions, that simply means a region that had autonomy in governance from the rest of the country and was ruled by a nobleman rather than directly by the monarch. Quite simply, it meant that Chester had independence from royal government until the earldom reverted to the monarch, until the monarch actually became the earl in 1237. And when Magna Carta was issued in 1215, Chester's political autonomy meant it didn't apply to the earldom of Chester. And so the earl had to issue his own version. And some of these privileges actually lasted until the 19th century. For example, the status of the Justice of Chester as the top judicial authority in Chester, that lasted well until 1830. Again, it's more evidence, isn't it? It all piles up that Chester was this very important regional centre. I want to move on to, you know, with all this strategic fortified location, defensive walls, were there actually any major battles in or around Chester. Um, there were. Um, and one thing to say actually about the Palatinate Authority is one of the reasons this was granted to certain regions was because these were regions that were centres of conflict and it made more sense for them to have more autonomy to organise their own defences. Uh, okay. To talk about specific battles, um, we'll actually jump back in time a little bit here to the Dark Ages. And an important battle took place in Chester around 615, which is the imaginatively titled Battle of Chester. Again, this is an important episode in Mercian Saxon history, which has been a bit sidelined by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle because it didn't involve Wessex and really consequently less known today than it really should be. And what happened at the Battle of Chester was the invading Anglo-Saxons scored a major victory of the native Britons. The Britons were kind of this combined Welsh force. It was almost an Angles versus Welsh battle, if you could think of it in modern terms. Now, it has been suggested that the battle might have actually taken place in North Wales and not Chester. But there's actually some fascinating archaeological evidence supporting the case for Chester. Some graves containing bodies which possibly were from the battle, they certainly date from around that era, were discovered in Heronbridge, just south of Chester in 2004. Now, if this stacks up, it means that Chester is the oldest identified, positive identified battle site in the whole of Britain. So it's a unique point in our national heritage there. I suppose, though, with the with the Battle of Chester, I don't I don't think there's much to to see within the city. It's nothing to, whereas if we if we zoom forward to the Civil War, we've got structures that we can look at today and tell a story about the siege of Chester during the Civil War. Absolutely. I mean, we talk a lot about the Civil War in this podcast simply because it was one of the bloodiest conflict this country's ever seen. So there were, mm. put it bluntly, lots of battles. But there is quite a lot to tell about the Siege of Chester. 1644, this started. Chester was initially a royalist city controlled by the king's forces. And it was hugely important to him because it was the only significant port town which remained under royal control at the time. And during that siege by parliamentary forces, the city walls themselves still there today, as we mentioned, were used for gun placements. Morgan's Mount, which you can go to today, was actually constructed during the siege as a gun platform. And also this walls were used for observation. King Charles's tower um, was supposedly used by King Charles I 
to watch the Battle of Roughton Heath nearby. Now, this battle was the royalist attempt to lift the siege. The king's army was defeated by the parliamentarian forces and he actually withdrew from Chester the very next day. It's been suggested he might have been more likely to watch the battle from the roof of um from the tower at chester cathedral instead because it was higher up and might have given a better view no one knows for sure but no question he was in the city watching that battle and as well as the defenses you can actually see the impact today of the siege in some of the mortar damage to the walls in the southeast of the city there was more intangible impact as well because the siege really snuffed out the rapid population growth the city had been experiencing up until then as we said before Chester never became a massive city in respect of population. And what I love about the siege of Chester is you can almost, you can imagine standing on those walls and because you can see out so far, you can imagine that tale. And we, yes, it could well be a myth of the king looking out and, and seeing seeing the battle in the, in the distance. I, I think that's a, a real tangible feeling of history you get when you visit Chester. Similarly, and we'll t- we will talk more about the walls and the castle in, in urban heritage, but those features you can actually see and feel really bring Chester to life, which brings, I think, us onto the scores. This time I'd get a boat go first. And I think for what the reasons I've just said, that you can really feel that military history in the city. You can see some of the, the Roman artefacts. We'll talk about that. You can walk all around the city walls. It's great fun. You could go running along them. You can take your kids on the, you know, the replica cannon they've put on the corner tower and you can pretend you're there Uh, so i think if you combine that with this rich feeling that it's been so important over all these periods in history that you see in its different stages of architecture and research that we've done and what we've found and and what you can find in the museums this is this is an important place in um, political and military history and you can feel it so i'm giving it a good score i'm giving it an eight eight's a great score um I'm definitely going to give it a high score as well. I mean, to to be honest, despite everything we've said, it's almost hard not to think we've done Chester down in this category because it really was a hugely important city in its region and to the country for a long time. It played a really important role in numerous domestic conflicts, which we've not even mentioned. It was a centre of power for Richard II during his conflict with Henry IV, which kind of predated and led to the Wars of the Roses. It was an important location for Edward I's Welsh campaigns with conflicts taking place with Owen forces right near the city around the River Dee. Again, I haven't even touched on that. What we've done is picked up on some of the highlights here and our personal favourite points to give a flavour of its importance. But really, we could have picked up on entirely different sample and had equal impact. I suppose the only negative point I'd raise is that Chester's importance definitely faded after the late 18th century. And we'll talk a bit more about that in the next category. But really, this is because sense of political importance turned to kind of rising centres of heavy industry, which Chester definitely was not. But in all honesty, that barely detracts from the richness of what came before, um, which is, as you actually said, it's given due commemoration today in the walls, the castle, the urban fabric of the town, even the museums with the, the diva Roman experience and the other museums in the city. I'm also going to give it an eight. The only reason it it doesn't get top scores are that fade from power after the late 18th century um, and the fact that some of its importance was a little more regional than national. But this is almost just nitpicking, really. It's it's a great city for this this category. So very strong scores there, 16 out of 20 from... Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's interesting, isn't it, to contrast it with Coventry, where I think we gave Coventry quite good scores in this category, but because of its later influence, mm. its influence in the, the 20th century world wars. It's just interesting, that, that contrast. 
Moving on to the third section about industrial, scientific or trade influence, I think we have to start by discussing Chester's strategic trading position. So we've mentioned already nearby access to Ireland. And we know its port is, is long gone. It's long since been surpassed by other ports. But how important was the port at Chester historically? Hugely important. Hugely important in the Middle of Ages. It was built on the site of an old Roman harbour. But this was arguably the most important seaport in the whole of northern England for many centuries. Now, trade with Ireland was the main source of wealth for the city from the late Middle Ages to Tudor times. But Chester was actually an international trading city. There was archaeological evidence which shows trading links stretching as far away as China. And as a port city, Chester also would have had this draw on agricultural and other commercial produce produced from North Wales and much of Northwest England, which helped to make it this really regional commercial capital. Peter Borsay, um, an urban historian, has actually labelled it one of the top ranking provincial towns by Stuart Times. He calls it a regional capital, which is kind of the second level in this hierarchy of provincial towns below the capital London. This is despite, as we mentioned before, its population being lower than many other less significant provincial towns. And even despite that perhaps Bristol started to rival it as the most important West Coast port in the late Middle Ages. What really changed for Chester was when it was supplanted by Liverpool in the 18th century as the most important trading port in its regions. We've We've hinted this before, um, that it was surpassed by some of the other rising industrial cities at this point. But there was actually a geological reason for this as well. The River Dee became heavily silted from about the late 18th century. What this meant was the course of the river changed, which you can actually see on old maps today. In fact, the water tower from the city walls actually to sit out in the river for Chester it meant that large ships could no longer reach the city whereas previously they could do it also had less kind of convenient access to the coal fields of North Wales some of the places started to have better transport links from that point onwards but there's no question before then Chester had one of the most important trading ports in the whole of North and West England. And in another area of, and I suppose this is connected with the port, the other area of its significance historically was as a, a centre for markets, large markets, large market fairs. And I guess you've, you've still got that today. The retail is disproportionate to the population. But I suppose in the late Georgian period, we've talked about the decline of the port, the, its status as a market and trade fair. Trade fairs also declined. Meanwhile, we've, we're going through this period of heavy industrial growth in other cities. To what extent did the 19th century industrialism touch Chester? Is there anything that that you can see of that today? Well, there's no question there was some. I mean, you couldn't be a major or or, or even semi-major urban settlement in the early 19th century or the late or the 18th and not be touched by industrialisation in some way. And the Shropshire Union Canal helped facilitate some of this in Chester, although it's very clear that it rose to nothing like the same extent as in other cities. I mean, in the early 19th century, Chester actually experienced negative migration, which is really very surprising for an urban centre like this. There are some tangible links left to some, uh, some industry in Chester. Um, one of them you can go to now is Telford's Warehouse, Telford's warehouse was built in 1790 by the famous Thomas Telford, partly over the canal so that boats could be unloaded or loaded inside the building itself. What's quite interesting about it today is it still exists and it was converted into a pub in the 1980s. 
we popped there, Liam, if you remember. And a very nice pub at that. that. Good very, beer selection. Very pleasant um, stout in there, I think. Absolutely. And the other remnant I'll draw out is the Chester Shot Tower. Yes. Shot Tower is the only remaining feature of an old lead works, which was fairly prominent in Chester. It's the oldest shot tower in the UK. There are only still three that still exist, possibly the oldest in the world. I should probably explain what this actually is, a shot tower. It's a very, very tall tower where molten lead was dripped through a sieve from the top. And as it fell from a great height, the surface tension would form a perfect sphere during the drop. And so by the bottom, when it cooled in the water at the bottom, it would form perfectly round lead shot for use in guns. And the tower is actually currently being reconditioned, as we saw, and incorporated into what looks to be a quite nice new housing development uh, next to the canal. That's actually a good part of Chester to visit. I, I really enjoyed that part of our visit. We went around the shop tower, which is, yeah, nice apartments going up. But there's the canal, canal side buildings that you can go inside. Most of them are eateries and, and drinking establishments, but nevertheless, really pleasant urban fabric. And you do get a feel for the, for the industry that did touch Chester. It was something of a railway junction as well. So I think the railways brought a certain resurgence of prosperity in the late 19th century. Uh, it certainly wasn't a railway town in the sense that nearby crew was, but it's left a legacy of a quite an impressive railway station. Um, and you see when you look through the statistics on trade and industry in Chester growth that sort of came alongside that railway. But you look at Chester's economy and it's a very diverse. It's home to a few... well-known financial institutions and you've you've got the large Airbus factory just over the Welsh border so it's a diverse economy but but really when we think of Chester today we'd think of the tourism industry wouldn't we? I think you would yes Um, you know despite the lack of proper heavy industry as we consider it it still found itself this niche as a tourist destination as a retail destination really starting at the end of the 18th century similar to, to Bath and other resort towns. It was this combination of kind of retail facilities and its architectural diversity, which enabled it and still enables it to be this centre of leisure rather than commerce. And actually, it's interesting you talk about the railways because no, it wasn't a railway town in the sense we would traditionally understand it as being founded by a railway. But there's no question that the new railway networks really kind of initiated a transition in clientele from the previous Georgian gentry to to mass working class travel, which impacted who was able to come to these resort towns. Certainly by the end of the 19th century, the Victoria County history says there were many tourists coming from America and very far afield. So there's no question Chester had this international draw. And this really continued into the 20th century. Another particular noteworthy point in time was after the Second World War. Nearby Liverpool, which dwarfs Chester in population, took a massive battering to its urban fabric during the Blitz. But Chester escaped relatively unscathed and gave the inhabitants of Liverpool this kind of alternative, pleasant retail excursion. I mean, the city's always had far more shops than it needs for its its population. And some of the tangible legacy of its retail history, going back centuries, is the oldest existing shop front in England, part of the Rose, which we'll talk more about later, which is the three old arches, which we've saved on the map um, which you can find on our website. Google Maps had it saved in the wrong location, so we've corrected it and put it to the right location. Doing a service to Google and wider society, this podcast. Good to know. And finally, in this section, I think it's worthwhile mentioning some Cestrians that have made a major impact in the fields of medicine and engineering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> what we try to avoid in this podcast is talking about people who are just happen to have been born in a place. We're looking more at people whose 
paths in life or works were shaped by their life or experience in Chester. And so we're not mentioning we're not mentioning Daniel Craig or Michael Owen or anyone like that. We, we're, exactly. We're, we want wider influence. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I suppose a good way to look at this is who was educated in Chester um, mm-hmm. in the fields of science and industry. So we'll talk first about Diana Beck. Diana Beck was born near Chester. She went to this Queen's School there for seven years from 1912 to 19. And she became probably the world's first female neurosurgeon. She actually found public fame when she operated on A.A. Mill, author of the Winnie the Pooh book. So kind of this really pioneering figure mm. in the world of, uh, of medicine. And we've got the engineer Thomas Brassey, of course. Absolutely. Thomas Brassey, the great civil engineer. He was born in rural Cheshire, but he was educated at the King's School in Chester from 12 to 16. We couldn't possibly hope to list all his achievements because there were so many of them. But as highlights, by 1847, which was really the, the peak of railway mania, Thomas Brassey was responsible for the construction of one third of Britain's railway network as it existed at the time. That's incredible. That's an incredible statistic. Absolutely. And by the time he died, he was responsible for 5% of all the railway mileage in the entire world. He, he, oh, built, wow. he built other things, sewers under London, which is still in use, Royal Victoria Docks in London. Um, he's commemorated today in the Chester's Grosvenor Museum and the Cathedral. There were busts of him um, in both of those locations. And also there were three street names named after him in the city. Okay, it's time to... Time to go on to the scores. My Who's turn. Going first. I think it's my turn. If we, if we, it's a bit. I've I've landed you going first on the hard ones. Sorry. No, no, that that that's no problem. I, I suppose one thing I'd say is that Chester's eclipse by Liverpool and the other industrial towns of the region. It's it's, it's, it's quite unfortunately timed for this category. It meant that although the port was significant before, it never had the opportunity to act as this major centre for trade or manufacturing after the industrial revolution. It kind of meant that any growth in industry in Chester was really there to serve niche small-scale industries or an insular demand for a population which was really not growing at the same rate as many other urban centres. But nevertheless, the tourism and retail sectors are important, and it's great that we still have unique heritage representing this today. I suppose the issue there is that, as the historian E.A. Wrigley wrote, this transition to kind of a service and retail economy really precipitated the city's decline from national fame and regional importance to a locally significant city only. And this is kind of what we saw in politics and wars. As as industrial revolution happened, industrial manufacturing grew, Chester stopped being a nationally and regionally important city and became a local city. I think there is enough to talk about and some uniqueness there in what we can see today. But when you think about the other major industrial centres of this country and what they've offered to kind of the world of science and industry, there's not going to be quite so much to, to score it for here. So I'm going to give Chester a three. Great. I'm going to go marginally high. I'm going to give it a four simply because of that uh, importance in national trade, the legacy of that, which is that it's become, uh, despite not being one of those major cities of growth, it trade has been retained in its status as a retail centre, which then reflects in the architecture and the buildings that we're about to come on into the next section. <laughs> Well, this is really the, the big section for Chester, I suppose. Um, I, I think what, what I really loved about Chester, and I, I know we, we talked about it a lot when we were there, is that the visibility of the urban heritage and the, the representation of so many periods, the architectural remnants, 
are, are embedded in the fabric of the city as as you walk around, whether it's the shops, the walls, the, the, the all the, the different buildings of different styles. So we've discussed already the importance of Chester as the legionary fort, Roman times. But how much can we see from this period today? What's noteworthy about Chester is just how much there is. I mean, if in any other city, um, just one Roman relic you know, would have us in raptures. But even, as we saw in Bath, there wasn't a huge amount of Roman Bath left to see today. But really in Chester, we're pretty spoiled. The first thing we'll talk about is, I think, the amphitheatre there. Um, the military amphitheatre there has been half excavated. The southern half has been excavated today. And this was built in the first century AD, just outside the walls of the Roman fort, which founded the town. Um, it held 8,000 spectators, so equivalent to kind of a third division football ground today. And it's the largest that's ever been in- uncovered in Britain and had this really extensive network in the vicinity of dungeons, stables and food stalls. It was initially used for animal blood sports, you know, cockfighting, bull baiting, and also combat sports like gladiator fights. Uh, and what happened was the buildings were kind of later demolished, and but the recessed arena um, section was still used for public ex- execution. So the bloodletting didn't stop. But it, eventually there was so much kind of rubble there and so much rubbish dumped that the area was levelled and the amphitheatre was laid untouched until it was rediscovered during conservation work in 1929. Unfortunately, only the southern half has been excavated. That's partly due to the fact there are some Georgian buildings which are themselves listed built on part of the northern half. Mm. It's also thanks to some, I think I'd say Pratt's, can I say the word Pratt on this podcast? Pratt's council. Yes, you may as well. Who decided to build a new court and car park over part of the northern half about 20 years ago. I've read some of the local letters to the council objecting to this. It, it, it's an absolutely baffling decision as far as I'm concerned. So the northern It is half- baffling, isn't it? Yeah. The, so the road that I think forms part of the ring road, it sort of goes around the edge of the amphitheatre. Yeah. And I read that at the time of that road being proposed, the local local far- charities and fundraisers had to to convince the council to, to actually pay to move the road to go around the amphitheatre rather than over the top. Uh, I find that absolutely extraordinary. It, it, it really is. But I suppose what's more kind of frustrating about the, the decision to build the car park and the court on top of the amphitheatre was this was only 20 years ago. And we like to convince ourselves mm. we've got a good appreciation of our urban heritage now, yet still someone took that decision in this in this millennium, in this century. It's so strange, isn't it? I wonder whether that's partly because, you, you, you know, it's absolutely extraordinary when you see an amphitheatre that's 2,000 years old. There's no no question in my mind because you, you think of all the things that went on there. You, you, you imagine it. But maybe because what's left now is quite simple, the structures, it's just the foundational structure. Perhaps for something to be really appreciated, it has to have a dramatic aesthetic as well. It has to be Instagrammable. And people just can't see... Visualise the excitement of that amphitheatre in the, perhaps the, the same way we do. Well, I'd say I've been to some fully excavated amphitheatres in Italy before, and I think they absolutely do have that dramatic effect. I think if you're standing in the middle of an area where you know all this has gone on, you're surrounded by seating, you really do get that dramatic effect. And yes, of course, it's mm. it, it's changed significantly. The look of the, the building since in the last two thousand years, what wouldn't? But I think full excavations can really do that. The weird thing about our amphitheatres, for such dramatic structures, this, we're still found, finding them. I think the London Amphitheatre was only found in 1988. Mm. It was under the 
guild hall again it's you can't see it from the surface you have to go underground to see it but i I gather in york they still haven't found the amphitheater no there's a there's a there's a roman bath that's been excavated it's actually in a pub um right you can go into a pub go downstairs and see uh see the bath which which actually brings me on to a bit of moaning about um roman chester i mean there's there's so much more great stuff you can see there um there is minerva's shrine in edgar's field which is a, a second century shrine carved into an old quarry there but as much great stuff so as that, there was, is- that, that was brilliant though can i just say I, what i loved about that thing was because that was set in a park and you just had free access to it yeah we went right up to it there's nothing Nothing you protecting fenced it. off. You don't have to enter into it. It's right there. It's a beautiful setting, and and also that's a lovely part of the city as well. By the River Dee, by the bridges. It's such a it's a really really nice thing thing to visit. Very small, but it's and it's quite remarkable. But it's so old. Um, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted Absol- you. No, you, the, you- the, the, that, that's fine. You're absolutely right. It was it, it was great. But I will have my moan on this. Um, and as much great stuff as there is, there could have been so much more. And it's it's our usual enemy on the oldie guide, um, kind of reckless 1960s city centre redevelopment, which we have to blame for this. During the during construction in Chester City Centre in the 1960s, huge amounts of Roman artefacts were just destroyed. There are there are workmen's accounts, primary accounts of really horror stories of sections of Roman baths, which were just as good as those found in other cities being wrecked exquisite mosaics just being thrown away um there has been a bit of an attempt to preserve some of the roman artifacts in chester um in the roman garden um which is just by the banks of the Dee. and um, this was established in 1949 if i'm honest it's a little bit of a, a little bit higgledy piggledy a little bit of a hodgepodge of kind of roman artifacts from around the city mm. there's not much authenticity about it it's just blocks of roman masonry or different artifacts put together arranged in patterns i mean it's good to have an effort to be made to celebrate these things but it just reminds me horribly of some of those messy restored medieval streets we encountered in our coventry episode it just doesn't seem to work as an authentic recreation of of roman chester in any way no it certainly isn't it's pleasant to visit though and i'd say that's one of the strengths of chester that whole area because that's sort of connecting the 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 roman city with the river and it's a a very pleasant area that that park and the the nearby grosvenor park and they're just they're just set outside the the city walls um which really brings us onto the walls i think some of the best city walls in the country i'd say what do you think absolutely i mean there are fragments of city walls that remain in a fair number of english cities a few dozen but they're really only a very small handful in which they survive substantially or largely intact. And Chester's, which form a complete two-mile circuit around the city centre, have a pretty solid claim to being the best and best preserved in the whole of Britain. I would say possibly only York um, is a serious rival for that. Um, upon Tweed is pretty good, but you're right. Normally it's just bits of rubble, isn't it? um, Chester's, you can walk right around in a ring and it's great views and it's very high on some sides as well and, and, and while they were constructed originally by the early roman settlers and there are actually some roman foundations sitting beneath some of the towers today they're refortified later by saxons as we heard earlier by Ethelfled and normans damaged in the civil war but when you talk about being able to walk around the top of the city walls that really is because of um refurbishment restoration work done in the 18th century um 
we discussed in our Bath episode how in Bath they just got rid of the city walls. Despite it being a resort town, it didn't fit in with their plan for the town. The absolute opposite approach was taken in Chester. Um, they were repaired extensively. A walkway was added to the top simply to allow tourists or anyone who wanted to just come and walk around them and take in this kind of pleasant perambulation around the city. So it shows a really kind of a complete departure in approaches to city walls around that time. Now, meeting the walls in the southwest corner, we've got Chester Castle. And this building, it rises quite dramatically above the river. And it's clearly been a castle that's been modified in different ways over the centuries. But how old is it? When was it first constructed? Well, the original castle was built in the 11th century by the second Earl of Chester. But that was a wooden structure. It was replaced by a stone tower in the 12th century, further fortified in the next. But what you see today really is kind of a, a, a quite beautiful combination of this restored medieval ruin and Georgian neoclassical revivalism because it was extensively restored and augmented in the 18th and 19th centuries. And you can really see that today in some of the clearly neoclassical buildings, um, including most notably the proper liar, which now acts as this gateway to the castle complex. Yeah, I, I felt that was a wonderful part of the city. The contrast between this sort of the older, I think it's the Agricola Tower and the, the neoclassical buildings that are occupied by a museum and the, the law courts today. And then nearby, you've got Chester University. So it, it, the buildings reflect different styles, but they somehow fit together well. And they also seem to blend well with the natural topography of the area, descending valley into into the river. And then that takes you round to the river frontage, lots of space. And you've got two uh, impressive bridges there as well. Another part of the city where we've got a mixture of architectural styles is around the cathedral. How old is that? I think you mentioned the cathedral in an earlier section. How old is the cathedral? There have actually been two cathedrals in Chester. Now, the, the first, St John's Church... Um, was found in the 7th century. And this was the church that formed the destination of King Edgar's le legendary journey across the Dee that we mentioned earlier from his palace on the other bank. And this stood as Chester's Cathedral until 1082. Um, but what you still have is the present-day St John's Church on the north bank of the Dee. And that's wedged between the Roman amphitheatre and the ruins of the previous cathedral, which contain a rather grisly medieval remnant in the walls. It's a coffin that was supposedly dug up by workmen and um, added into the walls. Gris grisly indeed. See, I thought the cathedral was wonderful. I also thought the Georgian architecture around the cathedral was very well done and well set. And I think that's something that I would say generally for Chester. There's, there's been really good urban heritage in the main, which really brings me on to standout feature of Chester. Totally unique which is its central shopping area, the Rose. And I, I can't believe it's taken us this long in the podcast to mention the Rose. I, I think I might... We're saving the best till the last. We, we absolutely are. What's interesting about Chester is it has this feel of being this authentically medieval city around its centre. But there's actually this quite incredible diversity, as you mentioned, of um, Georgian Victorian revivalist architecture there. And what this really means is Chester's present townscape, it was shaped as much as by kind of 19th century idealism as by medieval necessity. And I think the most famous example of Victorian revivalism you'll see in Chester is the Rose. What these are, are these black and white first floor buildings that 
go along these elevated walkways above four streets which converge on Chester Cross. They're kind of open arcades of wood-framed shops built on top of medieval undercroft cellars, which is an arrangement that dates all the way back to the Middle Ages. And it's almost unique in the whole world. I think there's only one city in Switzerland which has something similar on a smaller scale. And one thing I should say here is it's very hard to do them justice with a verbal description. So if you've not seen them before, do go on Google Images now and look at some photos of them to get an impression of what they're actually like. But an interesting point about them is while they, they look antiquated, they look ancient, they're almost all Victorian additions, um, which are constructed due to this kind of increase in 19th century prosperity in the town. And the black and white two-tone fake wattle and daub facades are part of what Nicholas Pevson, the great architectural critic, called the black and white revival movement, which I've always thought is just about the least imaginative label he could have given it. <laughs> But I mean, some people describe them as fake, um, but I think that's extremely harsh, not least because the original street arrangements and the cellars underneath, which are currently used for lots of purposes, including a pub that we, we visited, are most definitely medieval. And this feeling of walking along this centuries-old two-storey shopping lane is very, very real indeed when you're there. We don't just go to pubs, by the way. We had some <laughs> wonderful coffees as well. Absolutely. In, in the lower floors so yeah they are hard to explain aren't they but yeah essentially both floors are interesting the lower floors are interesting because they you you descend a few steps you go down from street level mm. and then the upper floor you've got this continuously running arcade but it's multiple buildings so it's a great place to go shopping and a good choice of shops as well and one thing you said that was interesting you you, you spoke about the the feeling of a, of a medieval street pattern and i agree with that but the other thing that I felt as well. You've still got the layout of the Roman settlement mm, you, yeah. in the Chester Cross. So the Chester Cross is where a lot of people meet because it's a very obvious place to meet people. It's sort of the intersection of some of the main streets in Chester, Watergate Street, Eastgate Street, Bridge Street. And that's the centre of the town. But the square, the way that the roads are laid out in a square fashion, they're quite long roads. It sort of feels like it's preserved that Roman layout in a way that the other large Roman settlements, you don't get that feeling so much. And that, and that, that feeds through into the arrangement of the city walls as well. And as we mentioned, the city walls were initially founded by the Romans for part of the fort that, that founded the city. Um, but several of the gates there were actually built on the sites of the original Roman entrances to the town. For example, the North Gate. Now, this, is an, this was built in 1810, but it replaced a medieval gate which actually stood on one of the original entrances to the Roman city. And it's not, not the only one that did, the East Gate. Um, we have to mention the East Gate because this has the famous East Gate clock on the top, which is supposedly the second most photographed clock in Britain after Big Ben, although I've absolutely no idea how anyone could possibly know that. It's just one of these myths people seem to know about Chester. It's also built on one of the original entrances to the Roman fortress. So, yes, the Roman legacy is there in the tangible kind of archaeological artefacts, but also in the street layout and the walls which make the city so famous today. Great. I feel like we could talk more about the architecture and urban heritage of Chester because there is so much. Time is ticking as ever, so we've got to do the scores. It, it won't surprise you after all of my gushing the last 10 minutes or so that I really appreciated the architecture and the way that it's presented in Chester. I like the diversity. I like the walkability. I like the way it blends together in an attractive way. And I like the fact 
that you can engage with the architecture and the urban heritage. You can climb on the city walls. You can walk along the the rows. You can go underneath the rows. You walk along the river, bridges over the river. It's a place where you can stroll and, and you can really feel part of the heritage of the city. The only thing that slightly undermines it, you know, we've spoken before about perhaps ill-advised post-war urban reconstruction projects. And there's a little bit of that in Chester. It certainly hasn't been besmirched in the way that many cities have been. But there were some parts of it that I felt were car-dominated, and unnecessarily so, um, and there have been some mistakes. But overall, that's that's quite limited. So I'm going to give it a good score, a nine. Nine. Fantastic. Again, I'm going to remind ourselves of what we discussed in our episode on Bath. I mean, I'll use your word, we, we gushed over the cities up architectural legacy there but stopped short of giving it the top marks and one of the reasons for that was because it didn't have it, there was this kind of lack of diversity from its overriding georgian style and its architecture but i feel like the answer to that was given to us in in chester it certainly has the variety we wanted we spoke about how it took a completely different route in its georgian and victorian rebuilding projects it did embrace some neoclassical fashions like in the reconstruction and restoration of the castle but also embraced its medieval heritage through the preservation of the walls the reconstruction of the rows and the black and white revival architecture which so characterizes the city today and i think you can just sum this up by saying the city today contains an incredible 58 separate grade one listed buildings including those three pubs we mentioned with every era from norman to victorian plus roman represented among them now I think you're absolutely right, though. There have been some major mistakes in modern day urban planning and some of the retail and transport developments are, that ring the city centre are probably as bad as you'll find in many other city centres um, in England. But really, the good hugely out- outweighs the bad here. Um, and particularly the city's good fortune escaping major damage in World War Two means so much of this great heritage survives today. And we're so lucky for that. And none of this post-war development and none of these baffling planning decisions have been enough to destroy the city's unique charm. So I am going to give it a high score as well. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Well, I think it's fair to say that Chester is one of the more well-known English towns. It's a centre of tourism. We'd expect it, therefore, to do quite well on a urban history podcast. The whole point of the reality versus expectation round is to think a bit more about whether it was as good as we thought it would be and whether there were things that exceeded our expectations about it. Who's going to go first? Uh, I think it's probably me next if we're still on the ABAB. If you want, if you want, if you're happy to go first. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to go go, go first. Um well, I am going to bring some subjectivity into this. Um, I visited Chester fleetingly when I was younger and don't remember being all that impressed with it. Um, I kind of walked briskly around the city centre, somehow managed to miss the castle, the rose, the Roman remains, particularly really just everything that makes the city great. So in my naivety now, I was almost expecting Chester's history to kind of contradict its status as a top visitor destination but i was completely wrong and i've 
delighted to have been proven wrong. Chester's got a much richer political and military history than any other town we've we've covered so far. And this amazingly varied urban heritage, which, as we said, reflects every era of its history. It's got several excellent museums, genuinely unique urban architecture. And in all of these aspects, Chester, despite its reputation, still managed to exceed my expectations. And onto the gripes, Chester's industrial history, it's hardly non-existent, but it's pretty thin compared with the city's pre-industrial significance. And cultural history was a major letdown, though I am definitely motivated to go to that race course again because it was spectacular. But overall, we've said this before on the podcast, it's better to excel probably in one or two categories than achieve a mediocre score in all of them. And Chester here has got two of the highest overall scores I've ever given in political and military influence and architectural and urban heritage. So despite its reputation, I still have to give Chester a positive score here. So I am going to give it a seven. Seven, that's a good score. The architecture and presentation of the city exceeded my expectations, even though it's renowned for this. I was still really impressed. There was a bit more to see than I thought. I was a bit worried. I'd also thought about a previous time I'd been there and I'd only really seen the rows and the shops and the walls, which which would have been good. That's enough. But I hadn't appreciated things like the castle, the museums, the area around the River Dee, the race course. There's definitely more to see and it deserves a, a, a longer stay. Definitely. There's enough to see here. Uh, equally, in terms of the history that we've discussed already, representation of the city as an important city in so many years of history since I knew very little about its importance in the Saxon era for example I would have expected for such an important settlement politically in the country for there to, to have attracted more historical cultural influence over the centuries but otherwise it's I find it quite hard to give a score in this category because I think Chester was fantastic. I had a really good time. The places we visited were wonderful. Everyone was very friendly in Chester. I stayed at a wonderful guest house. We had some fantastic coffees and beers, really pleasant food. I think we just had a great time. But it is known as one of the top tourist cities in, in England. And I think I would agree that if I was visiting England and I didn't have very long to stay, it would be a city I'd visit. But that's kind of to be expected. And, and I'm thinking ahead to places that we visit that we might go and they're underrated but i did have a great time more than i expected so i'm going to go with a six six well to be honest i think for a city with the reputation and standing of chester to get a positive scoring reality versus expectations is really fantastic i think it's great that we can still find new things to appreciate even in cities where we know there's going to be to be lots going on and lots to see so yeah that's great so overall scores then Political and military influence got 16 out of 20. Industry, 7 out of 20. Art and culture, 4 out of 20. Architectural and urban heritage, 17 and a half. Reality versus expectations, 13. So total score is 57 and a half. And we'll add this to the league table on the website and you can see where it's standing so far. I've got the quick fire quiz for you here, Liam. And quick fire I always, quiz. I always enjoy this bit. Um, you actually mentioned in this episode that some aspects of Anglo-Saxon history are kind of missed out of our historical education in this country. So we're going to try and correct that now with a quiz on the Saxon heptarchy. No idea what you're talking about. That's fine. It's a collective name applied to the seven major kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England. Now, we discussed in the podcast 
how Chester was a very significant city in the kingdom of Mercia and sidelined to some extent because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was commissioned by the King of Wessex, Alfred the Great, to record Mm. great incidents um, and memorialise the history of of Wessex. So my question to you would be, Mercia and Wessex are probably the two best known. Of the other five members of the Heptarchy, how many of the other five major Saxon kingdoms can you name with five guesses? God, this is going to be a bit embarrassing. I assume that um anglia is one east anglia yep yeah east anglia you can have that that's a relief so i get one okay i'll give you some clues um three of these are the names of present day counties in southeast england sussex sussex is one correct essex essex correct oh well that's that clue has worked doesn't it so so i mean i i suppose it's the area that's Garden of Currently England. Covered by think, think of Kent. the garden. Yeah, I was going to say. I was, but what would it have been called? I'll just have to say the area. It's just Kent. I'm, I'm taking Simple Kent. Simple as yes. that. The final one. Do you want me to to put you out of your misery? Yeah, go on. Most of Northern England was covered by Northumbria, but no, that that's very creditable. That's um, that's good. I enjoyed that. I've learned something there. And all the listeners, you now know the the seven. What's the what's the phrase that you use to describe the the, the heptarchy? The heptarchy. The Heptarchy of Saxon England. That's it. The seven major kingdoms of Saxon England. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Ye Oldie Guide. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We've we've enjoyed visiting Chester, haven't we, Daniel? I I had a fantastic time in Chester. I I can't wait for our our next place we go to. If you've enjoyed the episode, please get in touch. If you've got any comments on the episode, if we've missed anything, well, we have missed stuff because Chester, there was just so much to talk about. But if you please get in contact if you think it's something we we really should discuss in a future episode just get in touch via the website theoldieguide.com through social media or or through apple podcast reviews whatever's easiest um see you next time bye-bye bye-bye